demons. They are there in our New Testament. What's more, in the Gospels, the demons know Jesus. Jesus faces them down, silences them, and casts them out. What's more, Jesus challenges his followers to do the same. Demons. There is a whole field of study called demonology. It's uh, complicated and Byzantine. The study of demonology can take a hapless person down treacherous and serpentine rabbit holes from which they might not find their way back again to the light of day. As the 13th century Dominican friar and bishop, Albertus Magnus, said of demonology, it is taught by the demons, it teaches about the demons, and it leads to the demons. I have no intention of going there. You'll be glad to know I have no intention of taking you there. So let me cut to the chase. Demons in the New Testament represent evil. They represent immorality, wickedness, suffering, mayhem, confusion, and rebellion against God. In a pre-scientific world, in the New Testament world of 2,000 years ago, demons are a shorthand for evil. The thing about evil, it causes harm and injury. Evil. In the United Church of Christ statement of faith, we proclaim this. God calls us into the church to proclaim the gospel and resist the powers of evil. The pairing of these two acts, proclaiming the gospel and resisting evil, comes from today's scripture. Quoting Mark 1.39, Jesus proclaimed the message and cast out demons. The United Church of Christ Statement of Faith was commissioned in 1957 and adopted by the UCC's General Synod in 1959, which is to say it was drafted and adopted in the very midst of the Civil Rights Movement and in the wake of Nazism, a racist nationalist movement in Germany that had been aided and abetted and not much resisted by Christian churches, just as slavery and segregation had been aided and abetted and not much resisted by U.S. Christianity. One of the theologians engaged in the drafting of the UCC Statement of Faith reported that it was very much informed by the world in which the church was then ministering. Roger Shin wrote, proclaiming the gospel and resisting evil are joined in the statement of faith because Jesus joined them. He sent his followers to proclaim the gospel and to cast out demons. The telling of the gospel inevitably means conflict with demonic forces. This theologian avers that the evil to which the UCC Statement of Faith refers absolutely includes, though is not limited to, the evils of racism, 
of white supremacy and white nationalism. Racism was on the minds and in the hearts of the authors of our statement of faith. When authoring such phrases in the UCC statement of faith as resist the powers of evil, as the cost and joy of Christian discipleship, Roger Shin, then a Christian ethicist and dean of Union Theological Seminary in New York, today of blessed memory, Shin was absolutely thinking of the courage of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose Christian resistance to Nazism cost him dearly, cost him his freedom, and then cost him his life. For his resistance to the evil of white nationalism, Bonhoeffer was imprisoned by the Nazi regime, and then in April of 1945, hanged. Today, on this day, the first Sunday in Black History Month, allow me to tell some true stories and to ask you to ask yourself, who is proclaiming Christ's message of love in this story? Who is responsible for the evil and the suffering in this story? Where are the demons in this story? The first story. The year is 1764. Nim, an enslaved man living in Litchfield, Connecticut, conducts his own singular protest, sitting where he is not welcome. Nim attends the Congregational Church in Litchfield, Connecticut. Repeatedly, he chooses to sit in a gallery pew reserved for white people, a pew reserved for whites not by any signage, but by custom, by practice, by convention. Disturbed by his breach of custom, distressed by this man of African descent who does not know his place, several white men complain to Nim's owner, Colonel Ebenezer Marsh. Nim's behaviors are described as very insolent and irregular and indecent conduct. Colonel Marsh orders Nim to desist, to sit in the section reserved for people of African descent. In addition, a lock is placed on the door to the pew. The next Sunday morning, June 8, 1764, Nim arrives early before the service has begun. He climbs the stairs to the gallery, walks to the forbidden pew, breaks the lock on the door, enters, and sits down. Court testimonials do not agree on what transpires next but it is clear that Nim is confronted by three young white men who forcibly remove him. In one account, Nim is thrown from the pew. The incident is adjudicated two months later, in August 1764, and the three young white men are fined a nominal three shillings each, plus court costs. I wish the story ended there. Instead, two years later, 1766, the Superior Court reverses and voids the earlier conviction. 
I ask you, who in this story proclaims the gospel? Who in this story resists evil? Who in this story represents the demons? And where in all this is the minister? Where are the deacons? Where are all the rest of the Christians? The second story. The year is 1740, the place Boston, perhaps involving members of this church I don't know. Of an evening, an enslaved man is ordered to entertain the whites in attendance at his master's house by impersonating the Reverend George Whitfield, the great awakening preacher. One can imagine that this enslaved man is an excellent and entertaining impersonator, obliging for what choice does he have. The black man who is to impersonate the Reverend Whitfield opens with a prayer and then launches into an impromptu sermon though a sermon one must surmise that had been brewing in this man's heart and mind for some time. In his sermon, he claims, I know I have a master, even Jesus Christ my Savior, who has said that a man cannot serve two masters. Therefore, I claim Jesus Christ to be my rightful master. You know, master, now addressing his earthly master, you have been given to cursing and swearing and blaspheming God's holy name. You, master, have been given to being drunken, a whoremonger, covetous, a liar, a cheat, but God has pronounced woe against all such and has said that such shall never enter the kingdom of God. I ask you, who in this story is proclaiming the gospel? Who is resisting evil? Where are the demons? Footnote. This incident was subsequently printed in a newspaper in Glasgow, Scotland, which is how we know it. The Glasgow Weekly History, in a story reporting on the success of Christian revivalism on this soil. In other words, this enslaved man's plucky sermon impersonating the revivalist preacher George Whitfield had its effect. The white master was there and then under the spell of the impersonating sermon, and he reformed. Somebody say, hallelujah. I recently finished this book, Dividing the Faith, The Rise of Segregated Churches in the Early American North by Richard J. Bowles. Bowles is a professor of history at Oklahoma State University. In doing research for this book, Bowles spent a lot of time in Boston at the Congregational Library. I dare say he knows our church records a lot better than any of us. Old South Church features prominently in this book, not always, 
to our advantage. By carefully, meticulously tracing church records, records of membership, of baptisms, weddings, deaths, and funerals, Bowles argues that in the colonial period, churches such as Old South, while interracial, were very much segregated. Black and white worshipped at the same hour, worshipped in the same building, listened to the same sermon, were pastored by the same clergy, but were very much separate and very much unequal. Blacks in the balconies with the children, whites on the main floor with the most prominent and respected of white people sitting closest to the pulpit. However, in the antebellum period, as the country neared the Civil War, as persons of African descent grew more and more educated, as more and more gained freedom, as they were able to gain in agency with income and land, you might think, you'd be wrong to think, but you might think that our churches became more and more integrated. In actual fact, while white Christians proclaimed equality as a gift from God, they preached it, they proclaimed it, they nevertheless practiced manifest harmful, injurious inequality. They were called out for this by black and Native American Christians, some of them clergy, who argued it was the white Americans who needed to convert to Christianity and to become truly civilized. Indeed, it was this failure to honor God's equality, to meaningfully integrate, that gave rise in the early 1800s to separate black churches such as Boston's African Meeting House on Joy Street. I ask you, who in this period is proclaiming the gospel? Who is resisting evil? Who are the demons? The United Church of Christ Statement of Faith avers that we are called to live out the love and justice of Jesus by engaging and resisting evil. Proclaiming the gospel is not on its own good enough, faithful enough. It is to be, it must be paired with more perilous and meaningful work, the holy work of resisting evil. Let us begin.